morning, everybody. Um, thank you for all of you for being here with me in this very, very strange, surreal time. These are incredibly frightening, anxiety-inducing times. And for me, at least, it's a comfort to see all of you. I've just enjoyed scrolling through, look, looking at hundreds of faces, so many of whom are familiar and many of whom are also new. And I'm just glad we could be together to learn some Torah together and to create this moment um, of community together. I also just feel the need personally to add um, a, an additional word of thanks to all of you who are or are supporting medical professionals who are really on the front lines right now. Thank you for the incredibly sacred and courageous work that you're doing. It is seen and it is noticed and it is appreciated. And with that, there's no easy transition. But with that, um, I want to turn to this evening's topic, which is the triumph of creation, a new reading of Exodus. If you were, I think, to ask your average, fairly educated Jew, what is the book of Exodus about? And for that matter, what is the holiday of Pesach about? They would likely tell a story about a transformative event in the life of a particular nation at a particular time in a particular place. They would tell a story that was deeply particular. That is the story of B'nai Yisrael, of the children of Israel who cry out to their God, who hears their cries and enters into history and redeems them. And that becomes their, our formative and foundational story, which we never tire of retelling and reenacting and reliving. That answer would be accurate, to be sure. The Exodus is first and foremost about the redemption of the Israelite slaves from Egypt. And the holiday of Pesach is first and foremost a remembrance and a reenactment of that liberation. What I want to think about tonight is the ways in which the Exodus, both the book and the experience, are also about something else. The Exodus, I want to argue, is about the triumph of God's design for creation over the forces which would thwart God's designs for creation. Or to put that differently, even though the story is first and foremost particularistic, it is a story of the people of Israel, it is also in profound ways universalistic, and in the eyes of, the, of Tanakh, not just universalistic, but also downright cosmic. So if you um, can turn to your source sheets, you will see the beginning of the book of Exodus. Source one is, is the beginning of the book of Exodus. And if you turn to verse seven, you'll see that the narrator tells us, And the people of Israel were fertile and they multiplied vastly and they grew and they increased a tremendous amount. Now, if you're paying attention, and I underline this in the sources, when you see the words paruva yirbu, you are, I think, supposed to be brought back by the beginning of the book of Exodus to the beginning of the book of Genesis, where God's blessing for creation is, both for animals and for people, pru urvu, be fruitful and multiply. This is important as a beginning because we are being reminded here that or being told really in a subtle way that amidst the people of Israel in Egypt, God's designs and hopes for the creation as a whole are beginning to be fulfilled. 
right? The blessing of Pru Urvu is beginning to be fulfilled in Israel, among the people of Israel, that is. Now, the challenge is that immediately what happens is that a force rises up that says, well, again, on the surface, in the particularistic version of the story, I'm going to oppress these people because I find them threatening. But at another level, what I'm calling the universal and even cosmic level, something else is at stake. So if you look at verse 10, Paro says, let us outsmart the Israelites. Pen your bet, lest they multiply. And then his fear that they will be a fifth column in the case of war. The word that I want you to please keep in mind is pen your bet. Pharaoh's commitment, lest the Israelites multiply. And then just a couple of verses later, the narrator tells us in verse 12, and the more the Egyptians oppressed the Israelites, the more he multiplied, the more they multiplied. Now, this is an example of doing a close literary reading that no translation could ever capture because the literary reading depends not on the repetition of words, but on a play of sounds. Paro is lined up on the side of pen lest he multiply. Paro, in other words, is lined up on the side of death. God, on the other hand, is lined up on the side of ken So did he multiply. God is lined up, in other words, on the side of life. Now, Rashi already noticed that pen lest he multiply, and ken so did he multiply, are set up in opposition to each other. What it isn't clear to me if he quite sees, and he certainly doesn't say it, is that what is being laid out in those verses is the cosmic stake of this battle. Paro, God's opponent, is the force on the side of death. He sees life flourishing. He sees God's creational design coming to fruition. And he says, no way, not on my watch. So you have this amazing kind of battle of Paro on the one hand and God on the other. By the way, I'll just note almost in passing, because I think it's fascinating the way that um, the ambiguity of Hebrew works so beautifully. What Paro actually says about the Israelites is fascinating. He says um, that B'nai Israel are, Hine am B'nai Israel rav menu. That's verse 9. The people of Israel are rav menu. You could translate rav menu either as too numerous for us or more numerous than we. Too numerous for us or more numerous than we. That basically is the history of xenophobia in one wonderfully ambiguous Hebrew phrase. But again, what we have here is the battle of um, Penyerbe and Kenyerbe. And to clarify one thing, I think one of the things that the narrator is interested in here is that in this chapter, God appears to be invisible. And what you have here is almost in ways that are akin to Megillat Esther, um, you have here the hints of God's presence. Um, 
Ben Israel Paruva Yishritsuva Yirbu suggests that God is somehow involved in fulfilling God's designs, even though God is not visible and tangibly manifest. And the language of Ken Yirbed juxtaposed to Pen Yirbed with this miraculous sense of the more they oppressed them, the more they multiplied, is meant, I think, to suggest that there is an invisible or subtle hand of divine providence at work. But be that as it may, as it may that's our setup for understanding the book of Exodus. Lest he multiply, so did he multiply. Now, if you turn to um, the next text, you'll see there, of course, the passage in Genesis 1. Um, I, 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 maybe I should mention here that some scholars think that the reason the book of Shemot begins with the phrase, Ve'ele Shemot, and these are the names, rather than Ela Shemot, these are the names, is to make sure you know that in crucial ways, the book of Exodus is a continuation of the book of Genesis. What I'm suggesting here is that the book of Exodus is a continuation of the cosmic framing of the book of Genesis, as I'll develop in just one moment. Now, in order to understand just what is at stake between God and Paro, we have to take one step back and say a couple words about how creation works in the Hebrew Bible. If you are a student of medieval Jewish thought or Jewish thought actually ever since, your understanding of creation is likely creation ex nihilo, whatever this might mean, the creation of something out of nothing. That what creation means when we talk about it, when we talk about briyata olam, the creation of the world, what we're talking about is first there was nothing and now there's something. But in fact, in the Hebrew Bible, in Tanakh, that is not what creation seems to mean at all. What creation is in the Hebrew Bible is rather that first there is chaos and a world that is not habitable. And then God brings order and makes the world habitable for human life. You have that essentially expressed pretty clearly in Genesis 1, I think, if you come without preconceptions. In the beginning of God's creating the world, and the earth was, however you want to translate, chaotic welter. Right? There's not, there was nothing, and God said, let there be something. There was, there was a mess, and God said, let me start organizing this. Let there be light and darkness. Let there be water and dry land. Let me organize this so that life can emerge. Now, one more step here that's going to be crucial for us. In the mythology of the ancient world, the forces of chaos were often symbolized by sea monsters. And you have in various places in the book of Psalms and in the book of Isaiah, um, very explicitly, the idea that God creates the world by or through or with slaying the sea monsters, right? Now, if that sounds mythological to the point that it freaks you out or makes you feel distant from the text, think about why it is that water would be the symbol of chaos. I always find myself thinking these days about how in an age of tsunamis and hurricanes and what climate change will continue to unleash from water, the idea of water as an enormous, uncontrollable symbol of chaos resonates very deeply, I think. So God creates the world, according to several Psalms, by slaying these mythological sea monsters. And then, by the way, some of the most poignant moments in the Bible are essentially biblical texts saying to God, wait a minute, I thought that in creating the world, you slew the forces of chaos. Well, then why is chaos rampant everywhere? 
which leads to this fascinating moment in the book of Isaiah, where Isaiah imagines that it is not the creation of the world that is about slaying the forces of chaos, it is the redemption of the world. Those of you who went to yeshiva day schools may not realize this, but you were taught a version of this when you learned the rabbinic idea that when the Messiah comes, God will slay the Leviathan, the Leviathan, and feed it to the righteous people. That is a reverberation of that classic image of God slaying the forces of chaos. Now, why this long digression, seeming digression, into this idea about how creation is the battle um, of life over chaos and the defeat of chaos, and that chaos is symbolized by sea monsters? Because if you look at source three, and I think this is really one of the interpretive keys to understanding biblical theology as a whole, this is what God tells the prophet Yechezkel Ezekiel. Daber ve'amarta, speak and say this. Ko amar Hashem Elohim, thus says the Lord God. Hinini alecha paro melech Mitzrayim, I am about to deal with you, paro, king of Egypt. And then this incredible statement, hatanim hagadol, you great sea monster, you. Harovets betochi orav who are sprawling out in the Nile. Asher Amar, who has said, Li-ori, the Nile is mine. Va'ani asitini, which is also a wonderfully ambiguous phrase, which means either I made it, the Nile, for myself, or I created myself. Ani asitini can mean either. But notice here, Ezekiel refers to Paro as the great sea monster. Because, let's understand this really clearly, because... Paro is to history what the sea monster is to nature. That is a force of chaos that seeks to undo God's desire for life to thrive. Okay, the same way that water threatens life by overrunning any place that human beings can inhabit, so also Paro in his cruelty and his murderousness threatens to overrun God's design for life. So again, it's a crucial piece here. Paro is to history what the sea monster is to nature, as Yechesel makes clear by describing um, Paro as, in fact, the sea monster. When you keep that in mind, you then discover that what unfolds in the book of Exodus is fascinating. And it goes back to something many of you have heard me say many times, which is, no matter how slow you read by nature, you must train yourself to read much slower if you want to understand how Tanakh works. So you'll see now that when God prepares for the Exodus, God says in source four that Moshe should lift up his staff and stretch it out, stretch his hand with the staff in it over the water so that the Israelites can walk in the dry land within the sea. And um, in, in, in a few verses later, Moshe does that, and again, we learn about the Israelites walking in the dry land in the sea. Now, I just want you to notice, if you would, that in text six, I remind you of what happens in the creation of the world. God takes the water, separates it, creating two places, Yam, the sea, and Yabasha, dry land. Now, I'm not telling you you have to be persuaded by this yet, but I want to suggest here that the language repeated twice of Yamini Abasha here 
and then repeat it again in chapter 15 is extremely important because it is another allusion to, oh, don't forget about the creation story in Genesis 1. If you're not persuaded yet, bear with me, okay? If you look at source 7, you see something really interesting. The plague of darkness, makat choshech. Vayomer Hashem el Moshe, again, God says to Moshe, spread out your hand and there will be darkness over all of Egypt, total darkness, so dark that the Egyptians can't move. And then at the end of verse 23, But for the Israelites, there was total light where they lived. What God has just done in Egypt is, God is again dividing the darkness from the light. The Egyptians are enveloped of dark, in darkness. The Israelites are enveloped in light. So, so far we have, beyond the Genesis 1 allusion to Pru-Urvu and the Pen-Yerbe, Ken-Yerbe, we have here an allusion to God's creating the world by separating the waters, Yam and Yabasha, and God's creating the world by creating light and darkness and separating them, as God does also in Egypt. Now, if there are any of you, heaven forbid, who are watching this and thinking, okay, fine, but I'm still not really buying that that's what's going on here. I like to think of source nine as essentially the narrator coming along and saying, if you're not seeing what I'm doing yet, I'm now going to hit you in the head with a sledgehammer. Okay, so now verse nine, I'm going to read this verse first, if you pardon the chutzpah, as it should have read if it made any sense. Okay. And then I'll translate. And the woman became pregnant and gave birth. This is Yochevet, Moshe's mother. And she hid him for three months. She had a baby. She doesn't want the baby to be genocided under Paro's command. So she hides him for three months. But that's not the verse we have. The verse we have is on the surface sort of insane. And the woman became pregnant. Vateled Ben, and she gave birth to a son. Vatere Oto Kitov. And she saw that he wasn't, you'll probably translate here as he was good looking, but it's and she hit him for three months. Now, this phrase is bizarre. In other words, what? If he had come out and been ugly, she would have said, okay, fine, genocide the kid, right? It makes no sense at all. And it, I think, meant to take you as a reader to stop us in our tracks. And notice the words, Vatera oto kitov, which remind you of what? Vayar Elohim kitov. That phrase is the core phrase of the creation story in Genesis 1. And the point here, I think, is earth-shattering from a biblical perspective. Nothing less than that. That is that the birth of Moshe is not just a moment, although it is certainly also and primarily a moment, but not just a moment about the redemption of this particularistic tribe, it is also a crucial moment in the unfolding of the cosmic battle between God, who is on the side of life, and Paro, who is on the side of death. The birth of Moses has cosmic implications. Okay? Now, here's the sort of clincher, if you will, for this narrative. The narrative is... Remember what happens, how God, how does God, as it were, defeat or reign in chaos in the creation story? 
God takes water and pushes it up and down. God separates water in a vertical separation that allows a middle space between the waters above and the waters below. And that middle space is habitable land where human beings, human life, and, and cosmic life more generally can flourish. When you keep that in mind and you notice the, the narrative allusion to Yam and Yabasha in chapter 14, you then see something amazing, which is how does God liberate the Israelites from slavery in Egypt? God recapitulates the act of creation by again engaging in an act of separating water. Only this time, the separation is horizontal rather than vertical. God pushes water to one side, God pushes water to another side, and life emerges in the middle, right? So the very act of redemption is a recapitulation of the act of creation. The very same thing that God does, God reiterates in this moment of redemption, which again is a victory for creation. And what I think here is actually really powerful when you begin to imagine the symbolism is that if you think again about how the two forces of chaos that we've been talking about are paro in history and water in nature, then paro being swallowed up by water is the fantasy of chaos consuming itself. The forces of chaos ultimately are obliterated by chaos itself. There's a way in which that, that yearning is, I think, true to all kinds of human experience and human desire, that, that the forces of chaos simply are consumed by their own malice. So to understand here where we are, right, God has just enacted, effectively, a recapitulation and reenactment of the creation story as a way of scoring a decisive victory for the forces of life and creation against the forces of death, chaos, and destruction. So the question that many people will ask, and understandably so, is, but wait, the story is so violent and all these Egyptians drown at the sea. Why does the force of life end up enacting so much death? I think a perfectly reasonable and understandable question. And I want to answer this I do not mean what I'm about to say as an apologetic at all, actually. I mean it to try and understand what I think the Bible is doing here. My sense is that the biblical text's response to that question is, yes, I hear you. But that's not really the question I'm engaged in here. The question I'm engaged in here is not the Egyptians drowning in the sea. It's the defeat of Egypt. And that's different. Now, I don't know whether this is convincing. Honestly, I need to spend more time on a concordance playing around with whether or not this works. But one German Bible scholar I was recently reading makes a very interesting observation apropos of what I'm saying here in text number 10. He asks why it is that the text says in, in, in lines that are familiar to many of us from liturgy, and God liberated, God saved Israel on that day from the hands of Egypt. Vayar Yisrael et Mitzrayim metal svatayam. And Israel saw Egypt dead on the seashore. Vayar Yisrael et Hayagda Gulash Mitzrayim. And Israel saw this great deed that God had done to Egypt. Adonai. And they feared God. Vayaminu Badonai Moshe Avdo. And they um, trusted in God and in Moshe, his servant. 
Now, what this Bible scholar argues is that it is striking that it doesn't say Vayar Yisrael et Hamitzriim metim al Svatayam that Israel saw the Egyptians dead at the sea, but rather that Israel saw Egypt dead at the sea. And his argument, again, I'm not totally sure whether this is persuasive or not, but his argument is that that is the narrator's way of saying this was never about the Egyptians. This was about defeating what Egypt stands for. Egypt stands for death, oppression, cruelty, undermining the ability of human life to flourish. And God effectively defeats all of that and leaves it essentially lying in defeat. So all Israel can see that Egypt as an idea, excuse me, has been defeated. Now, one last point for this first part that I want to kind of drive home is that if you turn to page four, source 11, or scroll down, whatever you're using, you will notice a couple of things here that I want to point out about Shiratayam, the Song of the Sea, again, familiar to many people from daily liturgy. In verse 16, the text describes, Tipola lehem imata vafachad, fear and dread descended upon those who dwell in Canaan. Bigdol zroacha, through the might of your hand, yidmu ka'aven, they became silent as stone. By the way, for Hebrew lovers, this is a great pun. Yidmu ka'aven is a double use of two Hebrew roots, dalid memhe, which means they became similar to stone, and dalid memem, which means they became silent like stone. Bigdol zroacha, yidmu ka'aven, until your people, God, crossed over. And JPS here, I think translation is sort of weak. Till your people whom you have ransomed. That's the rendering of kanita. Now let's talk about the word kana for a second. If you know modern Hebrew, this is a, a time to forget all the modern Hebrew you know, because kana, which you think of if you know modern Hebrew as to purchase. If you go back to rabbinic Hebrew, kana most often means to acquire, hence the modern meaning of to purchase, okay, from the word, the word kinyan, obviously. It can mean that in the Bible too, this people you acquired, except that in the earliest levels of bib biblical Hebrew, the root kuf nun he means not to acquire, but to make or create. That's why on Friday night, we refer to God in the liturgy as konesha ma'im va'aretz, an allusion to Genesis, I think it's 15. God is um, creator of heaven and earth. And what I want to suggest is that here you have, when the narrator says, ad yavor amcha Hashem, ad yavor amzu kanita, what the poem is saying is, until this people crossed, O God, until this people you created. What does it mean you created them? How is that a term for what happens in covenant? Because you covenanted with them through the act of recapitulating creation. If that seems far-fetched, you should remember that the book of Isaiah describes the Israelites as amzu yatsartili, this people I created for myself. Not that I covenanted with, but that I created for myself. And I think that that is probably an allusion to, again, the recapitulation of creation in the act of defeating Egypt. Now, one last point here that I think kind of makes this argument on some level have to be what's happening in Exodus. We know that in the ancient world, a king is acclaimed as king 
only once he has defeated his enemies. It is only when Paro is defeated and drowned at the sea that for the very first time in Chumash, the word Melech, king, is applied to God when the Israelites cry out, Adonai loch le'olam va'ed. May God be ruler forever and ever. That is to say, the forces of chaos, both in nature and in history, are now defeated, and God is now able to be king. So that's part one. What you have here is, again, this kind of remarkable, and I really want to underscore the point, I am not advocating in any way for letting go of the particularism of this narrative. What I'm suggesting is that as often in Tanakh, in the Hebrew Bible, the particularism kind of reflects and refracts some larger cosmic picture. God's designs for all of creation are somehow encapsulated in God's history and dealings with our people, with the Jewish people. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting. It reminds me, it's kind of slightly off point, but it's, but it's, it's related. Um, the Bible scholar John Levinson has argued that one of the things about um, a lot of Christian liberation theology that he finds very troubling is that a lot of liberation theologians will end up saying, we are Israel. Right? The story has certain kind of universal implications. So we are Israel. And what Levinson argues is that when, when people do that, they effectively appropriate our narrative and displace the Jews. And then Levinson shows really interestingly that in Martin Luther King's sermons, one of the things that's really striking is that King never says African-Americans are Israel. He says the story is ours also. Um, a way of saying, don't take away the story from being about Israel, make it about Israel and also see the way that it has broader implications. An awful lot of Christian universalist reading historically has effectively erased Israel and said the story is only universal and cosmic. What I'm suggesting is that in the perspective of the Bible itself, the story is deeply particularistic and also cosmic and universal in its scope. With that, I want to shift to part two that I will talk about more briefly. And that is this. Remember how I talked about the defeat of Egypt as an idea. In light of that, what I want to suggest is that one way, and I think you know, one could argue that this is an obvious point, but I'm not sure that it's always seen, one way to think about the revelation at Sinai and what follows is that God effectively says, okay, Israelites, I have redeemed you from Egypt, a place of cruelty and oppression and of degradation. Now I am enlisting you to create a society that will represent a radical alternative to everything Egypt is. The meaning of Sinai is to create a radical alternative to Egypt. So most of what rendered Egypt cruel, callous, inhumane, brutalizing, barbaric, you will now create a society that represents a living antithesis to that one. Now, I'll just mention as a, as a kind of like footnote here that there are many parts of the biblical law codes that modern readers wrestle with and say, really, this is the radical alternative to Egypt? This doesn't seem to me to be as just as I wish it were, and certainly not from a 21st century perspective. And fascinatingly, perhaps not surprisingly, you can div divide often among Jews who care about these texts as Torah, um, 
depending on their ideology about how to read these texts, right? In other words, to what extent do we have license in light of what we take to be the broader thrust of these texts to read particular manifestations of them that are troubling in creative ways? You see that, for example, in the writings of Rabbi Yitz Greenberg, the notion that if Torah is supposed to be a blueprint for a perfect society, then we actually have to be entrusted with repairing the blueprint and not just the society. And then more conservative, small-c thinkers who will say, that's not how it works to receive Torah. But in any case, I just want to give you a couple of examples here that individually will be familiar, I imagine, but that I want to try to build a cumulative case out of. So first, if we look at Parashat Mishpatim, you know, again, revealed at Sinai ostensibly. So we have this set of verses. V'ger lo toneh, you shall not oppress the vulnerable outsider, the stranger, and you shall not mistreat him. Because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Now, I've talked about this in countless lectures over the years. I don't want to belabor this other than to say that the Israelites are essentially told, look, your foundational narrative, your foundational experience was about having been strangers in a foreign place and you discovered what it's like to live in a place that is governed by xenophobia and hatred of the vulnerable outsider. Therefore, I am entrusting you to create a society where the vulnerable are not oppressed, and then in the language of Vayikra and Dvarim, of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, where the stranger is actively loved. Because you know, Exodus 23 will say, Ki atem yedatem et nefesh hager, which I think can be translated not so far from literally as, you know the life experience of the outsider. You know what it tastes like. And because of that, you have a special obligation to cultivate a society that is sensitive to the moral prohibition on oppressing the weak and oppressing the vulnerable and subject to exploitation. You know, law number one is you are strangers, therefore don't oppress the stranger. And I find myself wondering more and more as I get older whether that's why the Torah again and again returns to the idea of not oppressing the stranger and says again and again, you were strangers in the land of Egypt and not you were slaves in the land of Egypt because it wants the moral compass, as it were, that it wants to encompass a greater swath of human beings into those whom B'nai Israel owes care and concern to. It's not just slaves you can't mistreat. It's anyone who's a vulnerable outsider. That is, after all, how you started out. Slavery began somewhere. Refer back again to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Okay? Then the text immediately continues, Call Omanaviatom Lotanun. You shall not oppress any widow or orphan. Because if you do, and here notice the emphatic in the Hebrew, if oppress, you do oppress him. If cry, he cries out to me. Surely will I hear his cry. And then this very threatening formulation, and I will be furious with you and I will kill you and your wives will be widows and your children will be orphans. Now, Here's the, the piece that I want to just make sure we see here. The phrase, ana, tsa'ak, and shama, oppress, cry out, and hear, are all part of Exodus 2, where God is described as hearing the cries of the Israelites at the hands of their oppressors, and therefore acting to liberate them. And I think the point here is, 
that God is saying to the people, I want you to understand, just as I heard the cries that resulted when you were oppressed, so also will I hear the cries that emerge when you become the oppressor, right? I hear the tza'aka, or in the language of the earlier chapter, the za'aka. I hear the cry when it comes from you or when it comes because of you. I hear the cry in both instances and I respond. Now, another piece here that Rabbi Abraham Ibn Ezra, one of the greatest of the medieval commentaries, notes here that I think is stunning in its beauty. He says, you know, I wonder why, verse 21, call omanavi atom lota anun, you shall not oppress any widow or orphan, is in the plural. And then verse 22 says, if you do oppress, in the singular. And then verse 23 is back to the plural and says, I will be furious with you and I will kill you. Ibn Ezra says, well, what's with the inability to maintain either the singular or the plural? In English, of course, this doesn't work because you don't have that singular or plural difference between you. It's almost as if verses 21 and 23 were yous, as Archie Bunker would say, and verse 22 is you. And Ibn Ezra's comment here is that the Torah is subtly telling the people, all of you are implicated in an act of oppression committed by any one of you. That is to say, in Jewish ethics, there is no such thing as an innocent bystander. Surely there were many Egyptians who stood by watching. I will never tolerate a society in which you are willing to do that. In Ibn Ezra's language, if I recall correctly, he says, um, The legal status of those who witnessed oppression and remained silent is the same as the legal status of those who committed the oppression themselves. That is you know, an enormously powerful attempt to learn the lesson of enslavement in Egypt. Now, let's go one step further and notice here, I don't wanna do this in any, in any length or depth because I, I don't think we have the time, but in Deuteronomy 15, you have um, this, the remarkable vision of Shemitah in Dvarim, this is source 14. As you know, Shemitah in Vayikra is mostly about land. Shemitah in Dvarim is entirely about debt. I, I, I assume that Dvarim knows about Shemitah of the land, but that's not what it's interested in. It's interested in the idea of Shemitah as undoing debt. And here I think the idea is quite important. The idea of debts being forgiven fairly consistently is about essentially claiming that entrenched poverty is intolerable in the eyes of God, right? Entrenched poverty is something that God will not tolerate. God legislates in such a way to make sure that poverty does not become entrenched. Now, I should have actually brought you more of this text because what then happens is that when the slave is liberated, Dvarin, in contrast to Shemot, says, when the slave is released, you have to give him an economic start. You don't just liberate a slave, as would seem to be the shot in Shemot. You liberate the slave and you give him stuff to take with him so he can get a fair start. If you liberate a slave and give him nothing, in a week he'll be a debt slave again because he'll have no food. But what's interesting here, and what I suspect is going on here, is God is implicitly, I think, saying this, I cannot prove, but God is implicitly saying, you are a nation of liberated slaves. And when I redeemed you, did I redeem you and say good luck to you? 
or did I redeem you and make sure you had food and a fresh start? Learn from what I did for you. You are meant to be to the slave who you liberate like I was to you when you were a slave whom I liberated. That is the ethical view here is you have to become a liberator of slaves akin to the way God does, which is giving the slave a new beginning, which is exactly what God does, right? That's God's vision. Now, I want to, if I could, offer one last example of this that I think is really very moving. And in some ways, I think it's one of the most radical pieces of legislation in Chumash, but we have to, excuse me, we have to know something about the ancient Near East in order to make sense of this. So in the ancient world, harboring a fugitive slave is a very grave crime. To the best of our knowledge, all over the ancient Near East, if a slave was harbored as he was a fugitive, both the harbored slave and the one who harbors him can be punished gravely, sometimes even with death. Sometimes even with death, right? It is, it is absolutely forbidden to harbor fugitive slaves. In fact, in a couple of places, I'm not mistaken, in ancient Near Eastern law codes, you can hold a slave only so that you will capture him to be able to return him to his master. And in light of that, if you turn to Deuteronomy 23, you find what I think, again, is this completely breathtaking piece of what I will call radical defiance. Deuteronomy says, Lo tasgir evedel adonav. You may not turn a fugitive slave over to his master. Asher yinatzel elecha me'im adonav. This slightly strange Hebrew locution, who is natzald to you from his master. I suspect the reason this verb is used is only to make sure your mind goes back to God saying, Salti, and I will save you, right? So again, you have a fugitive slave arrives from outside the land of Israel. You may not return him to his master, but rather, he will dwell with you, or actually, to capture the emphatic of the Hebrew, with you shall he dwell, in your midst, in the very place that he chooses, in one of your, in any of your gates, which I'm going to translate, I think accurately, forgive me here, wherever he damn well pleases, and you may not oppress him. Now, please notice the fivefold repetition. Imcha, with you will he dwell. Bekir b'cha, in your midst. Ba'makom asher yivchar, wherever he chooses. Be'achat she'arecha, in one of your, in any of your gates. Batovlo, wherever he wants. And then crucially, lo tonenu, you may not oppress him. Meaning, if you're going to have a fugitive slave who's a non-Israelite live with you, he becomes a ger. Remember what I told you about gerim? The ger lo tonet. You may not oppress the stranger. Hence here, lo tonenu, don't oppress him. And in a really extraordinary piece of exegesis, the Bible scholar Dennis Olson observes that the phrase the place where he chooses, is repeated 18 times in the book of Deuteronomy. 17 times it refers to God's free sovereign choice to dwell in Jerusalem or to put God's name in Jerusalem. The 18th time, it refers to the slave's freedom to choose wherever he will dwell among you. Just to sort of make this point as ferociously as I can, right? The point here is, I think, if the slave knocks on your door and says, I'd like your living room, it's his. 
the slave is absolutely free. There's a chapter I wrote on this in the Heart of Torah is subtitled, Why Runaway Slaves Are Like God. The idea is to underscore their absolute freedom to choose to live where they will, and that's their home, and you have to welcome them. Now, again, remember the Israelite experience. It's as if God is saying, look, I know that it is forbidden to harbor fugitive slaves in various societies around you, but let me ask you something. When you were fugitive slaves and your master came looking for you, did I return you or did I harbor you? If you want to worship a God who harbored you when you were fugitive slaves, you will learn to harbor fugitive slaves. And if that's a defiance of absolutely everything you know from the norms around you, then yes, that's what you'll have to do. Now, what I want to say as a kind of last piece here about this section is that I think that one of the great spiritual and moral challenges that we face if we want to take Torah seriously as Torah is not to domesticate the Torah by admiring it. Domesticating the Torah by admiring it is essentially saying, oh, isn't that amazing that in the ancient world, the Torah was morally revolutionary and, you know, took this drastic step in affirming the dignity of slaves. Okay, great, what's for Kiddush, right? And to ask the question instead, what does it mean to be a people who inherits texts like this that defy the moral failings or the moral shortcomings of the societies around us? In other words, maybe another way of putting this is, we could say this in a very crude way. Many historians argue that there are more people currently enslaved than there have ever been before in human history. What does it mean to be a people whose fundamental story is about the Exodus and to inherit a law that says you may not harbor fugitive slaves, they can live in your living room if they so choose? And I think that question is enormously important. And even though I would emphasize that there's no one-to-one -one correspondence between a biblical text and a contemporary economic, social, and political reality, it can't just be that we admire a text and then think it has no implications for us. So what does it mean? And I guess one other question that I think is worth asking here is, these texts in many ways are envisioning a sovereign Israelite society. What are the implications of these texts for how we ought to think about our responsibilities as politically active people in societies that are not fully Jewish and that are not living out you know, a view that is explicitly based on Torah? Those questions have to really, really matter. You know, I, I often find myself thinking that we would take Torah much more seriously if we actually woke up the day after the Seder and thought, oh my God, yesterday afternoon, I was enslaved and devoid of dignity. Today, I'm a free person for the first time. What are the ethical and spiritual implications of that experience? As opposed to waking up and saying, oh my God, you know, Pesach cake is amazing these days. I overate, right? Really, I mean, in other words, there's something so fundamental about, you know, what it means to say that a person is obligated to see themselves as if they left Egypt in the really deepest sense of that, both religiously, what it would mean in terms of gratitude to God and ethically religiously in terms of what it means in terms of our obligations to other people. Now, the last piece, and I just want to say this quickly, the part three of, uh, of this is that there is a powerfully subtle transformation that takes place in the nature of work that the Torah envisions over the course of the book of Exodus. And whichever Christian it was who gave chapter numbers to the Torah, 
he was presumably onto something because there are 13 chapters that cover the Israelite time doing labor in Egypt and 13 chapters that cover the Israelite time engaged in the labor of constructing the Mishkan. But let me just sort of show you what I'm talking about here. In Exodus 5, and here I'm indebted to the Bible scholar Ellen Davis, who, who first pointed this out, to the best of my knowledge, when Moshe and Aaron demand a rest, Paro unleashes on them and says, this is source 17, Hein rabim ata am haaretz, otam There are so many people in the land, and you have caused them to cease from their labors. But hishbatem, hishbatem is from the verb lishbot, from the word shabbat. And the irony, as Ellen Davis points out, is it is Paro, who introduces the notion of Shabbat into the book of Exodus as a statement of defiance. I will never give you Shabbat. I will never give you a day off. That is not what a slave gets. And then, amazingly, the next construction project after the Exodus and the revelation at Sinai, when Moshe gathers the people, this week's Parsha, and tells them, here are the laws for how you will do labor for God in constructing the Mishkan. The very first thing Moshe says is, God says, you know what? You used to serve a master who refused to give you a day of rest even when you desperately wanted it. You know what I am? I'm a master who demands you take your own dignity seriously. The first thing you know is that you must keep Shabbat because that is a day of freedom for slaves. And then in Parashat Truma, which we just read a couple weeks ago, there's this really interesting moment where, which begins with Moshe um, being told by God that the people should bring Truma, ish asher yidvenu libo. People should give as much or seemingly as little as they like. That, by the way, is also an act of defying how slavery works. A slave is very rarely, if ever, told, why don't you go do some work if you want to? Why don't you contribute in the way that you feel comfortable with? This is not the slave as recipient of a Kol Nidre address, right? This is actually this very powerful slave, you do what I say. And then Moshe here introduces, at God's request, God's command, tell them to bring what they're moved to bring. Let them discover some degree of freedom or agency. In other words, in many ways, I think that the transformation of Shmot is from Avdut, which we would translate as slavery, to Avdut, which we would translate as service. And the whole idea is that there's all the difference in the world between being slaves of a cruel tyrant and being servant of a merciful God. Now, to just kind of like drive that home, it is also the case that the core word describing work in the beginning of Exodus is avodah, but the core word for labor in the later chapters is milacha. And milacha, you could argue philologically, linguistically, is more dignified labor than avodah. Malach, after all, is a messenger. Milacha is labor that has a purpose, labor that is creative. Hence the prohibition in rabbinic, in rabbinic literature on Shabbat of milechet machshevet right? That is to say, uh, creative labor is what, is what is prohibited, okay? So you have here also a transformation from brute labor to more liberated, thoughtful, creative labor. 
And there's one more thing here I would like to just say here, which is my own slightly outlandish idea. But if you look at Exodus 1, the Israelites are described as building Arei Miskenot Lefaro. I have no idea what Arei Miskenot is, and neither does anybody else. Let's call it garrison cities. That seems to be the kind of standard rendering. So it's very interesting, because if you pay attention to go back to where I started, to linguistic puns, the first part of Exodus has the people engaged in a destructive, degrading project of building a Miskan, a garrison city. And the end has them engaged in the life-affirming, dignity-affirming labor of building a Mishkan. They go from a Mishkan to a Mishkan. That's the trajectory of the book of Exodus. And by the way, just to sort of take this point to a slightly absurd extreme, we know that in ancient Israel, Israelites were unable to pronounce the letter Shin. Both Shin and Sin were pronounced Sa. Hence, they went in the book of Exodus from building a Miskan with a Samech to building a Miskan with a Shin. And that's the transformation from one Miskan to another Miskan. Only the gap between those two Miskans is a radical transformation that affirms the dignity of serving a loving and merciful God as opposed to serving a brutal and murderous tyrant. Okay, I'm gonna stop there and have Morty feed me some questions. I saw all kinds of things popping up on my screen, but let me see what I got here. Mark asks, I'm familiar with the idea of God subduing the forces of chaos at creation from John Levinson, but why then is so much of that material kept out of brace sheet and relegated to Psalms, etc.? So if you're interested in historical criticism here, and you know, with apologies for those for whom this is like verboten, but what, what if, since you mentioned John Levinson, I think what he would say is pretty clear, which is that in the trajectory of ideas of creation, Genesis 1 is late in that trajectory. And by then you have moved closer. You're not at a robust notion of monotheism, but you've moved closer which is why, please note, Genesis 1 goes out of its way to say that God creates the tanin. The tanin, the sea monster, the sea monster is not some kind of pre-existent cosmic chaotic force that God is wrestling in. God made him, and you get, it, that goes to an extreme in Psalm 104 where the, the tanin is described as that which God created, lesachekbo. It is, and in the words of one modern Bible scholar, the tanin is reduced to being God's rubber ducky, right? from being the ultimate enemy of God trying to undermine creation to being something God controls. So the answer, I think, is that Breshit is trying to subdue some of that peace. And I think also, you know, it's once Israel becomes a nation that its more cosmic reverberations can be more fully um, felt. Um, someone says here, but Exodus is not Esther. Va'era Bo makes absolutely very super sure you know it is God doing everything. Why the subtlety with God as actor? Well, I think here, the answer to that, it seems to me is, and I think we can struggle a lot with what this means and why this would be the case. But I think one of the key points that the book of Exodus believes is that until Israel cries out, God will not engage and redeem. There is something about the need for the Israelites to resist, rebel, cry out against their own oppression, that only then will elicit God's response. 
if you're interested in later Kabbalah, you might call this, I mean, this is not how Exodus quite thinks about this, as an Itaruta Dilatata that is necessary for an Itaruta Dilaela to come, right? There needs to be a stirring from below in order for the stirring above to come. If you want to kind of politicize that, you can maybe think about this as until people resist their own oppression, there's no point in liberating them. Because at the end of the day, and in fact, you can say that in many ways, the Torah is struggling with the fact that it isn't clear how much the Israelites really did want or really were ready to be liberated. So I think actually you're supposed to feel very strongly the contrast between the way God operates in Genesis, in Exodus 1, and the way God operates after the crying of B'nai Israel in the verses about their tzaka. Yoni asks, if the Egypt of Exodus is the antithesis of the world God desires, and redemption from Egypt is parallel to creation, then how should we understand the Egypt which Joseph descended and that protected harbored the Israelites when they had no food? How should we understand the Egypt of Genesis? So that's a fascinating question. Let me say, if I could, two things about this. One is, I often find myself wondering, what is going on when Deuteronomy prohibits the Israelites from hating the Egyptians? Because you were strangers in his land. And I suspect, although I am not 100% sure I'm right about this, that that is an allusion to the period before slavery when you were hungry in the land of Canaan and you went down to Egypt, at first you were welcomed. That Pharaoh treated you pretty well. Therefore, you cannot hate the Egyptians. You have a double memory of Egypt, the memory of hospitality and the memory that then that hospitality turned to brutality. Now, if you take that further, one of the most elusive and I think complicated pieces of the book of Genesis is the question of to what, whether and to what extent the text is actually critical of Yosef for effectively creating the economy that will then turn on his own family. Remember, it is Yosef who hatches the plan to effectively reduce the Egyptians to a kind of slaves. I mean, there's, it's, it's so incredibly fascinating because I think that in Breshit and Shemot in general, you have the refusal of essentialized roles where Israelites are victims and Egyptians are victimizers. In fact, you have, think about it like this. You have Avram goes down to Canaan in, in Genesis 12, is vulnerable and scared. Paro takes his wife. Avram is then told in Genesis 15 that your children will suffer avdut, slavery, inui, oppression, and gerut, being outsiders in Egypt, and in the very next chapter, Avraham and Sarai reduce Hagar, an Egyptian slave, to the status of she's a shivcha, which is a slave. Sarai is guilty of vate'aneha, she oppresses her. And the woman's very name is Hagar, the stranger. And then, again, at the end of the book of, Gen of Genesis, you could argue, I've tried to argue this, although I think it is ambiguous, that... Um, it is Yosef who reduces the Egyptians to slavery and constructs the economy, which then will end up having the Egyptians reduce the Israelites to slavery. So this is a very complicated tale of, you know, I think one of the things the Torah is really interested in is never assume that because you were oppressed, you will not become an oppressor. More likely, usually the opposite is the case. 
the moral vision. Remember that Jewish ethics is about doing unto others what you would have them do unto you, not doing unto them what they've already done to you. That's actually really quite crucial. You don't spend your time thinking, oh, you did this to me, let me do it to you. You think rather, how would I want to be treated? Then another question, the underlining assumptions framing this conversation, are we assuming there will always be slavery prior to redemption? Why does the text set forth how to treat a slave versus how to abolish slavery? So this is a question I want to just say that scholars of a field that they refer to as Old Testament ethics argue about whether the laws of slavery as described um, in the Torah are meant to make slavery more humane, but keep it as a thing, or to effectively establish a trajectory whereby slavery will eventually be outlawed and eliminated. Um, Yitz Greenberg likes to say, you know, if you're three steps ahead of the people morally, you can be a prophet. If you're eight steps, you'll get shot in the back of the head. And that's his argument. You might call it apologetic. I'm not sure, I'm, honestly. You might say that um, what's going on in, in the Torah is an attempt to humanize slavery until the people are ready to abolish it. The danger of that is there will always be people who read the biblical law as establishing what they imagine as an ideal circumstance. In the heart of Torah, I wrote about a teacher of mine, a Rosh Yeshiva in Israel, who once said to me, I think dead seriously, that you could argue that in the Torah's ideal, we would have slaves so that we could fulfill the mitzvah of treating slaves humanely. That strikes me as an extraordinarily poor way to read the Torah, but that is really a very interesting um, debate and struggle. Let me just see if there's more questions for me here. Just to add to the question of Egypt that we posed, I was posed by many others, how do we reconcile the slave and the Egyptian by Joseph? Okay, so that's, that was sent before I said what I said. I don't think we do reconcile it. I think it's very difficult. And in fact, again, I'm not sh I, I suspect that the text is subtly but forcefully quite critical of Yosef. It, it's probably also worth my saying, um, and here again, I, I, I really don't want to hear this, to present this as apologetics, because I think it is disturbing and will, ought to remain disturbing. The slavery that is imagined in biblical law, you should not be imagining the middle passage. You're essentially imagining a form of indentured servitude, which is problematic to be sure. But I think as living in the 21st century as we do, we can't hear slavery without imagining, you know, slave ships coming from Africa. That's not what's being imagined here. So it's just important to understand what, what's being spoken of. So the idea that you could humanize that is not totally crazy, but the idea that you would want to perpetuate it strikes me as deeply problematic. I'll just choose a couple of more here because I don't think I've gotten another list. How does the theology of Psalms see this idea? Interesting. I'm not sure which this idea is, but what I would say is I think that the book of Psalms is the most poignant expression, maybe the book of Isaiah is similar in this way, of the struggle between the idea that chaos has been defeated and the idea that chaos has not yet been defeated. And some of the most poignant, almost explosive moments in the Bible are essentially about saying, I don't understand, God. I thought you created the world. That is, I thought you subdued and defeated chaos. And if so, why does evil run so rampant? 
so I think the, the, what's so powerful about Tehillim is, if I could borrow a phrase from uh, the Bible scholar Walter Brueggemann, it contains both a testimony and a counter-testimony. It tells a story about God, a God who created the world by defeating chaos, a God who's on the side of the weak and the vulnerable, a God who loves Israel and protects it, etc., etc. And then a counter-testimony that says, oh, really? Then why is life as it is? The, the most poignant moment of that, in, in my mind, is the juxtaposition. Here's the testimony. The guardian of Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. The counter-testimony, Psalm 44. Wake up, God, why are you sleeping? Those are not reconciled. Those are allowed to live in excruciating tension with one another. So I think that that is actually quite significant. Um, and as I've often talked about with, with students in the full-time programs, it's one of the reasons that drew me to Tanakh um, as a field of serious study as I got older, um, which is, you know, the willingness to be honest about the pervasiveness of suffering and seemingly meaningless, unredeemed suffering is just enormously courageous and moving. As a kid, I was always taught that, you know, what do you do when something bad happens? You say, Gamzula Tova, this is good too. Nobody ever gave the psalmist that lesson, right? The psalmist was willing to scream bloody murder. This is not good. This is horrible. And I demand that you put a stop to it. And I think that the poignance of that, the poignancy of that is really quite overpowering. Somebody asks if I think there's a linguistic connection between paro and pera, meaning wild, to the point of paro being the chaos before God's creation. I think probably not. I could imagine a midrashic point doing that. Just to be clear with people, that's two different, right, two different roots. Um, pere with an aleph means wild. I'm very skeptical, especially since I don't, off the top of my head at least, I don't think chaos is ever referred to that way. If it were, that would be a more interesting possibility. Let me just quickly see if there's any more questions I can respond to before um, we call it a night. Another parallel someone says here between the Exodus and Genesis, the evil Egyptians drowning in the Yamsuf and evil people drowning in the flood in Parashat Noah. I would say yes, but um, what's interesting about Parashat Noah is, um, well, maybe, maybe you'll argue this is actually quite parallel, but I'll just mention here that I think an interesting way of thinking about the flood is there are moments when people assault God's creation so forcefully that God effectively says, okay, if you wanna dismantle creation, I'll let you. I'm not gonna hold the world habitable if you don't want it to be such. And so what you have, in other words, in, 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 in Noah is essentially, remember how the waters were separated above and below? God essentially says, okay, you know what? I'm tired of holding these. If you don't want this to be a world that's hospitable and habitable for life, so we'll end it. I'm not sure that the primary understanding of Genesis 1 to 11, something I've come to in recent months, I'm not totally sure I'm right about this, but I'm not sure that the primary meaning there is that God is punishing so much that God is allowing the world to run the course that it has begun to run in against God's will. You could argue, by the way, that the plagues in Egypt are similar. They are an unmaking of the created order. If Paro assaults creation to that extent, God will essentially say, okay, so if you don't value creation, so let creation be. 
in some sense, undermined and undone. As for the Ark Teva, someone makes a comment here, the Ark Teva, same word for Noah's Ark and Moses' basket. Yes, that I think is probably very much intended. Moshe is a new beginning for creation just as Noah is. I think that's a very good point. Um, and I appreciate being your, your uh, um, reminding us all of that. Okay, let me, let me stop there and say again, thank you again to all of you for making this time to be together. Um, again, from me and from all of us at Hadar, really nothing but brachot and well wishes for health and safety. May we hold each other in each other's prayers and you know, find our way through this incredibly dark time and may Torah help us be there um, and get there. Thank you all so much and have a very good evening.